0: As you return there, we're going to read the last part of chapter 15. But let me remind you that chapter 14, the children of Israel uh, leave Egypt. They come down and they are encamped by the Red Sea. And so the Egyptians come behind them and uh, God intervenes in a miraculous way. The Red Sea is open. The children of of, uh, Israel, they pass through the Red Sea and the Egyptians who tried to do the same thing were drowned. When the children of Israel saw what God did, organically they began to sing. Uh, At the beginning of Exodus 15 we have the song of redemption. Uh, They talk about how Uh, The Lord has redeemed them. The Egyptians have been defeated and they attribute all the praise to God. At the end of chapter 14, after they saw what God did, the last verse of chapter 14 says, And Israel saw that great work which the Lord did upon the Egyptians, and the people feared the Lord, and believed the Lord and His servant Moses. And... As they see that, they began to sing together, and so Moses sang. And then we know after that, that uh, Miriam, with the women, they sang unto the Lord. And um, we could say here, a great victory, wonderful time uh, to witness the, de- de- the deliverance of the Lord. And in the sense, it was a approving time for Israel. And they knew that at that moment, that God did not bring them out of Egypt for them to die by the Red Sea, but God opened through a miraculous intervention for them to pass through the Red Sea, and at the same time, not only to make a way for them, but also to defeat the Egyptians. And so we studied the song, the first song in the Bible last time, and it's a wonderful song. And there is a comparison that we can make because it is a song of redemption that Uh, we can sing the same type of song because we have been redeemed out of the bondage of sin. Now we come to uh, verse 22. And what we learn in the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers, if we don't learn anything else, is how how quickly man changes. (laughs) One moment he is praising the Lord The next he is murmuring and complaining. Now, lest we be shocked, uh, we have to be honest with ourselves and say, isn't that how we do it sometimes too? How in a matter of days we can be rejoicing and then in just a few days, sometimes even hours or even moments, began to murmur. And so here is what we find about the children of Israel, and I'm trying to put some context before we get to this part. It's been victory, miracle from God, singing, rejoicing. Uh, this crossing of the Red Sea is going to be remembered for a very long time. And now we come to verse 22 of Exodus 15. So let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Moses is going to lead the children of Israel to a place. And it's interesting how it's almost a repetition of what we had seen when Moses brought them by the Red Sea. Here Moses brings them to a specific place and we're going to find what happens. So verse 22, Exodus 15, verse 22. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea... And they went out into the wilderness of Shur, Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Mara, they could not drink of the waters of Mara, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Mara. And the people murmured against Moses, saying, "What shall we drink?" And he cried unto the Lord, he is Moses, he cried unto the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, which when he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there he proved them, and said, If thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God... And will do that which is right in his sight, and will give ear to his commandments, and keep all of his statutes. I will put none of these diseases upon thee, which I have brought upon the Egyptians. For I am the Lord that healeth thee. And they came to Elam, where were twelve wells of water, and threescore and ten palm trees, and they encamped there by the waters. I'd like to bring your attention to verse 25. After the Lord hears the cry of Moses, the Lord shows a tree to Moses. And the Bible says, When the tree was cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. Now, remember, what were the waters called? Mara, which means bitter. So I want to preach uh, this, this evening on from bitterness to sweetness. From bitterness to sweetness. At the end of verse 25, the Bible says, And there He, God, proved them. Proved them. Our Father, we thank You this evening for Your Word. And Lord, I pray that you would help us from this text. May we learn that at times you prove us, and that at times you bring us to places that might seem bitter, but often you desire to change those bitter moments into sweetness. So Lord, might we learn this evening how you seek to work in our lives. Might we understand it and might we gain a greater appreciation for what you do in our lives. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The children of Israel, here in our text, they murmured. Now this is not something that is uh, limited to this passage of Scripture. If we read on in the book of Exodus, and we'll make a point a little later, and then later in the book of Numbers, that it seems to be a common thing for the people of Israel to be murmuring. And I think as we look at the murmur of the children of Israel, we, we have to be reminded of two things that murmuring is common to human nature. And the second thing we need to learn about murmuring is that God does not like it. So it is common to human nature, and God does not like it. As a matter of fact, we're going to see later in the study of the book of Exodus, and even in the book of Numbers, I'm not saying that we're going to go to Numbers after we finish our study of Exodus But we're going to find that God is going to judge the children of Israel severely, severely for their murmuring. So I don't think when we read that word, we might get a sense of, oh, what's the big deal about murmuring and complaining? Let's just be reminded that God thinks it's a big deal. Now, God is very gracious to us. He is gracious to us. But in His graciousness, may we not take the, the graciousness of God as an occasion to indulge further in that which displeases Him simply because He is gracious. I like what Romans 2 says. The Romans 2 says that the goodness of God leads us to repentance. And so the attitude that we ought to have As we read through the book of Exodus and Numbers about the murmuring of the children of Israel, may we not look back and say, well, God doesn't deal with us uh, today. Let's remember that God is not pleased with it. And may that be where we focus. And may our heart be that we might never offend our Lord who loves us and who redeemed us. Now as we proceed here in our text, I want to just take one verse at a time and proceed through the end of the chapter, and I want us to see here what happens and how it happens and at what time it happens to see if we can gain some uh, insight into something that will help us. Verse 22 says, So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water." So the first thing that we read as we begin in verse 22, knowing the context, is that they are coming from the Red Sea. (laughs) They are coming from the place of victory. They are coming from the place where they have seen God intervene in a mighty way on their behalf. It was a miracle, a mighty miracle indeed, that they walked through, as the Bible repeatedly said, on dry ground. It was not just a miracle for the waters to part, but it was a miracle that the ground became hardened immediately so that the children could smoothly go through the Red Sea. And at the Red Sea, at the end, remember, we noted at the end of chapter 13 that it was at the Red Sea that the children of Israel, at the end says, they feared the Lord and they believed the Lord and they feared and believed Moses. Now we come to this place and so we've left the place of God's miraculous intervention. We are leaving the place when the children of Israel are fearing the Lord and believing the Lord and fearing and believing Moses. And so that's the place where we are brought from. And so now we turn from victory and we see that he takes them ahead, and notice what the Bible says. They went from the Red Sea, Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. So they are taken here, if you look at a map, sure, the wilderness of Shur would be on the uh, southeastern part of the Sinai Peninsula. Uh, well, the. Northwestern part, excuse me. So if you think about the Sinai Peninsula, uh, you have Egypt. I'm looking on a map. Okay, so Egypt on your side here. You have Egypt. Sorry, I'm going to have to turn around because I get all turned around. So you have Egypt on the west, and then coming uh, between Egypt is the Red Sea, and there's a V. And so the Red Sea comes down, and then it goes up. And so you have Egypt on this side, and they cross the Red Sea They're on the other side, which is the wilderness. That whole area between those two seas is called the Sinai Peninsula. And so they cross over the Red Sea. Now they're in the Sinai Peninsula, but they're in the wilderness of shore. Now throughout the book of Exodus and in the book of Numbers, you find that during the wilderness wanderings, you find a number of wilderness that are named. This is the first one, the wilderness of Shur. Then there's the wilderness of Sin. We'll see later. Then there's the wilderness of Sinai. Then there's the wilderness of Paran. And then the wilderness of of Zin. And so the children of Israel are going to go from wilderness to wilderness, from wilderness to wilderness. Uh, That's why they are called the wilderness wanderings. For 40 years in the wilderness... They're going to go from wilderness to wilderness before they enter into the promised land. Now, any wilderness, not just this particular wilderness where there's no water, but any wilderness would not be the first choice for the children of Israel. It would not be the first choice for Moses either. If the choice was left to the children of Israel and they took a vote and say, let's take a democratic vote, where do you want to go? They would not have picked the wilderness of Shur. They earlier would not have picked uh, encamping by the Red Sea. Uh, They would not have picked any of those wildernesses that they're going to travel through. But remember, they are being led of God. They are being led of God from a place of victory into the wilderness. And so we might think here that now God, since He brought about a great victory, that now they're going to dwell in the place of blessing. It's going to be wonderful. It's going to be, where's the place flowing with milk and honey? And it's going to be wonderful. And that's not just not where God leads them. But it is purposeful that God takes them through the wilderness You see, they were led, we saw earlier, by the pillar of a cloud. God was leading them along in the wilderness. They were exactly in the place that God brought them. As we noted here in verse 22, Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Sharnoos, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. So we read here, they're leaving this place of victory, they're going into a place that is undesirable, but nonetheless God has led them to that place, but now we encounter the problem into where God has led them. They face a problem, they went, notice, three days in the wilderness and found no water. So I want you to notice three things about where they are. First of all, we notice the magnitude of the problem. What's the magnitude of the problem? There is no water. Let me remind you here, uh, without um, much time here expiring, the children of Israel would understand the difficulties of living in the wilderness, and it wouldn't take very long. In the next, really, two chapters, we're going to find the children of Israel in need of both water and food. We could say here at the end of chapter 15, they need water, and then in chapter 16, they need food, and in both instances, they're going to murmur because they have neither. They have been looking here, it seems to me, the Bible says they have been traveling for three days, and they found no water. That means that they had been looking for a suitable place to encamp. A logical place would have been to find a body of water that they can encamp next to. And so three days have expired without any success in finding water. Now, we may read the scriptures here without considering the serious implication of such a predicament. That's a serious thing. You see, knowing the number of people in combination with the livestock, water was a serious and an immediate need. Uh, they, would be, they wouldn't be able to carry, because think about two million people with livestock, they wouldn't be able to carry much water with them, only enough for one or two days. And so we must think here, About the magnitude of this problem, and doing so, I think we can better appreciate the provision of God. And uh, sometimes we're not careful, we just read the Bible and we don't really think about how serious this was and the implication it meant for them. And so we see here the magnitude of the problem is there's no water, and you can go without food for a while, but you can't go without water for a long time. And they're in the wilderness. We not only see the magnitude of the problem, but we also see the time of the problem. The Bible says here, indicates to us, there is three days. Three days have expired since they saw a great victory over the Egyptians. They had faced the trials of the Egyptian army, and now three days later, they face another trial, we could say the absence of water. In the first trial, they could have been killed and destroyed by the Egyptian army. In this trial, they might wither and die in the wilderness. I like what uh, Macintosh writes. He says, the, dis- the discipline of the wilderness trial is needful. Not to furnish us with a title to Canaan, but to make us acquainted with God and with our own hearts. To enlarge our capacity for the enjoyment of Canaan, when we actually get there, the wilderness ministers to our experience of who God is. It is a school in which we learn His patient grace and His ample resources. I like that. You see, for three days now, they, they have to depend on the Lord. And we know in this passage here that God did this for them to what? To prove them. You see, God uh, takes us as we are as sinners in Christ. There's uh, nothing that in of our own selves that is deserving of eternal life, but yet God gives it to us. But once God saves us and delivers us, He uh, He takes us through a process that we might learn more about Him and that we might learn more about ourselves. You see, what we find in trials are two things. We learn about our own inadequacies and we learn about the sufficiency of God. Have you learned to be less dependent on your own self and more dependent on the Lord? By the way, I wouldn't say that any of us have arrived because God is still uh, proving us, helping us along the way. We read here that We, we see not only the magnitude of the problem, the, the time of the, the problem, but we also see the place of the problem. Why were they there? Why were they in this place without any water? And the simple answer is that the children of Israel were following the Lord. Weren't they? There was the pillar of a cloud And so this was, yes, uh, three days into the wilderness, but they had direction from God. You see, the children of Israel, they were in the will of God. Pastor, you mean to tell me that it might be, it was God's will for them to be without water for three days, to be in the wilderness? Is that what you're saying? That was God's will? Yes, that is exactly what I'm saying. Now, we might think here that uh, maybe the sinful nature part of us might say, well, if God was a just God, he wouldn't, would He take them to a place where they would have everything they need? Well, here is the problem. He's dealing with man. You see, man, often when God blesses him, man is very quick to say, look at what I've done. Isn't that what God's going to warn them about? Before they enter into the promised land in the book of Deuteronomy, God through the mouth of Moses says, by the way, Moses was not going to go in, but God through the mouth of Moses is going to tell the children of Israel, now when you get to the promised land, when you get there, and when your houses are full, and when uh, you, you have no need of nothing, remember and be careful not to say that you've done that yourself. You see, God needs to help us with that. Because we are very quick to find ourselves to be self-reliant with no need of God and to go on about our lives without need of God. And so the trials here that come into their lives, the trials that come into our lives should not be necessarily associated with our disobedience. Now it can be, a trial may come because we are disobedient, but not in this case. They were following the Lord. They hadn't veered away from where God had led them, but yet God brings them to a barren place. Let me ask you this. Which one is better? The path of obedience with trials and trouble or the path of disobedience without trouble? Let me ask you this again. Which one is better? The path of obedience with trouble and trials? Or the path of disobedience without trouble and trials? I am fearful that there are too many people who would rather be disobedient so that they don't have the trials and the trouble. May we desire obedience above all things, knowing that when the trials and the trouble come in our lives, it's so that we might be more reliant and dependent on God because it is not within our nature. And so God has to teach us and take us through that process. So we notice here the magnitude of the problem, the time of the problem, and the place of the problem. But notice verse 23. He says, And when they came to Marah, they could not drink of the waters of Mara, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Marah. Now, <laughs> let's try to put ourselves in their shoes, all right? It's been three days. Uh, since the Red Sea, great victory. And so you can imagine, they've been following the Lord. You know as they're following the Lord that there is a sense of expectation. Here, uh, God is going to lead us. We're following God. We're in God's will. Uh, But we find no water anywhere. And finally, they come to a body of water. And so you can sense here in the camp without the Bible having to say anything, you know when you've been thirsty after a hard day's work and you can't find water. It's (laughs) amazing. We we buy in our house, we buy those... uh, Uh, five-gallon things and we refill them. It's very cheap because we used to buy water bottles and then the children, they just go through it very quickly. So we buy the five-gallon and I refill it. Well, tell you what, when we run out, I I have, we have what, four, five of them? We have four of them, I think. Four, five-gallon big jugs and we have little, in our kitchen, little things where they can fill up their cup and it's wonderful. Well, I'm I'm telling you what, when we run out of those, when all those uh, uh, five-gallon Jugs are empty. It's like the end of the world in our house. There's no water. What are we gonna do, Daddy? You have to get more water. And so we're not that desperate, but sometimes it seems like it is. But you can imagine the joy and the exuberance that the children of Israel would have when they would see water. It's been remember three days. It's not just them. It's all the livestock. Everything that they need, and so now they see water, there's joy, exuberance, and you can probably hear them say, Oh, bless God! when they finally see the water. Now, the Bible says that they could not drink of the water for they were bitter. I want you to see here the emotional roller coaster that they went through. Are you ready? The first of all, they were tired and thirsty. That's the, the emotion. It's been three days. They are tired. They are thirsty. They, by the way, you become weaker. You become more irritable if your tummy's not full and if you need a drink. And so uh, there's always this, this, this tiresness, this, this thirsty. Everybody's on edge. We need water. This is getting desperate because if we don't find water, it's going to be devastating. And then all of a sudden you see the water. And so the emotions change instantly. You could, there, there's like a reinvigoration. Now they are happy, you can imagine many of them ran to the waters of Mara, and then they, they began to drink of the water, and you can see in that very moment the emotions completely change with disappointment. It's bitter, they spit out the water, they can't drink the water, and so they're completely disappointed. Emotional roller coaster. And then they began to murmur. Tired and thirsty, irritable. Rejoicing and happy, disappointed, murmuring. Do we ever go through a similar emotional roller coaster? We do, do we not? So they're in this place. They even assign a name to this place because of their great disappointment. They came, the Bible says, to Mara. They could not drink of the water of Mara, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Mara. The word Mara means bitterness. That's why it was called Mara. The word itself means bitterness. It's interesting, that word is only found here and then in the book of Ruth. If you hold your place here, turn with me to the book of Ruth in Ruth uh, chapter 1. Just a interesting comparison here. Yeah, it's a small book. It's hard to find. Before our first Samuel. Uh, Notice Ruth chapter 1 now. Naomi, we know it's the story of Ruth there, but Naomi, we began really with Naomi and her husband at the beginning of the chapter. We see that um, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died, and then her two sons, Malon and Chilion, also died. And then she returns to Bethlehem. Remember, they were from Bethlehem. Uh, and they went to uh, Moab. And so when her husband dies and her two sons die, uh, their two sons married Moabite womans, uh, women. And so they went back to Bethlehem. And notice when they return, we read later in chapter 1. Notice with me, uh, down in verse 19. So they went to went uh, so they went two went until they came to Bethlehem and it came to pass when they were come to Bethlehem that all the city was moved about them and they said is this Naomi and she said unto them call me not Naomi call me Mara for the almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me i went out full and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. Why then call ye me Naomi, seeing the Lord hath testified against me, and the Almighty hath afflicted me? And so, uh, Naomi is in great bitterness. She is bitter. Why? Because she says, God hath dealt bitterly with me. And so in the sense, when the children of Israel, they say, Oh, this is called my because the water is bitter. That's an appropriate name. They themselves are becoming bitter. Uh, Why? Because remember, there was an expectation here. God has provided for us. And now they're disappointed. You know where bitterness often comes from? Disappointments. Where we have an idea about what God ought to do for us. And when we are disappointed because God doesn't do what we expected God to do for us, then we become bitter. Bitterness often arises out of disappointments. So they're disappointed. Uh, Water, but not really water. You can't drink the water. It does Not quench your thirst. It it is bitter. And so notice what happens because of this disappointment in verse 24. The Bible says, And the people murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Now we talked about, I begin in the message to talk about uh, the word murmur. But really the word murmur literally means to stop. It means to be obstinate. To have a grudge. They began to murmur. Uh, By the way, uh, turn to Exodus uh, 16, verse 2. And the whole congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Notice verse 8 of chapter 16. And Moses said, This shall be when the Lord shall give you in the evening flesh to eat and in the morning bread to the full, uh, for that the Lord heareth your murmurings which ye murmur against him. So, notice who were they really murmuring against? They were murmuring against God. Now, remember, they're murmuring to, to Moses, Why? Uh, Moses, why, why did you bring us here? Well, who, what was Moses following? The pillar of the cloud. They were really murmuring, murmuring against God. So, your murmurings are not against us, but against the Lord. Verse 9 And Moses spake unto Aaron, saying to all the congregation of the children of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he hath heard your murmurings. Go to chapter 17. Verse 3 and 4. And the people thirsted there for water. There it goes again. And the people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is this that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? And Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, What shall I do unto this people? They be almost ready to stone me. So this is going to turn violent. Now, by the way, you'll see later in the book of Numbers, Again and again and again, they murmur and murmur and murmur. But what does that mean to murmur? What's the implications of that when they say the murmur? This is what they're saying. We're done. We're not following God anymore. That's it. I'm done. I am standing in opposition to the direction of Moses, ultimately to the direction of God. In other words, we are done Following God in the wilderness. Implications for us today? We are done following God through difficult times. We murmur and say, no, I'm done. I I just don't want any more of it. I'm done. That is murmuring. To become obstinate against the direction of the Lord. To hold a grudge for God. Why? Because He brought me to this place. Now we're going to spend a lot of time, and I'm gonna, we're going to deal with the, the moment that God is going to judge the children of Israel for their murmurings. And so I'm going to have an opportunity later in this book to deal thoroughly with murmuring and to try to examine ourselves about when we murmur. So I'm going to spend some time in that later, but here we're not going to see God judge them for that murmuring, but because of its consistency over and over again, God eventually is going to judge them for murmuring. But in the New Testament, I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Lest we think that this is just about the children of Israel. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10. Now, remember the book of 1 Corinthians. Paul has made a lot of references to the Old Testament. He's made a reference to to the Passover. Back in chapter 5, he says, Purge out the old leaven that he may be a new lump. Uh, and so he talked about purging out the leaven of malice and wickedness. So that was early on. Here in chapter 10, notice what he says in verse 1. Now he's writing to believers in the church, 1 Corinthians 10. Notice, moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Now, who are, who are we referring to? Well, the, the Exodus. They were under the cloud, the pillar of the cloud. And they passed through the sea. Now, we know who these people are. Exodus 14. And were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of the spiritual rock that that, uh, followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now notice here, he is showing us there that what happened in Exodus fourteen fifty is a picture. We can liken that to a picture that when we are saved, he says, look, they were baptized. So the picture is when they come through the Red Sea, it was like a baptism, basically. And so they come through that baptism, and on the other side of that, what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to serve the Lord. They're supposed to follow the direction of God. But God was not pleased with many of them. Why? Well, notice for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Verse 6 Now these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Now we're going to look at all those places, but all those are examples for the church. He says, neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. By the way, the serpent was said because they were murmuring neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happen unto them for ensamples, And they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. And so here's what he says to the believers. You ready? When you read this in Exodus chapter 15, don't think that you're not involved in this conversation. Don't think of oh, man, these children of Israel. Man, they're bad. Look at them murmuring all the time. He says, those are written for our admonition. In other words, this is uh, what is common to man. Now, as he's writing to the church, he says, do you, do you remember how God dealt with them? This ought, ought to be something... That we ought to take seriously. And so he says, don't, don't murmur as they also murmured in the wilderness. You know, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul to the church at Philippi, he says, do all things without murmurings and disputings. So in other words, you can do something for God, but you can murmur at the same time. So don't, don't murmur. Don't, don't murmur. What do we learn here? Why did they begin to murmur? Well, I think that if you look at the pattern here, through the remainder of the book of Exodus, if you look at the pattern of chapter 14, when did they begin to speak to Moses in chapter 14 when they saw the Egyptians? They turned to Moses and they say, What are you doing? Did you bring us here to die? Were there no graves in Egypt that you had to bring us here? Here, what is the circumstances? Well, no water. they're taking their eyes off of the Lord, and they're placing their lives on their their eyes on their circumstances. Do we understand this is very important. They are taking their eyes off of the Lord and they are putting their eyes on their circumstances. you see. Life circumstances are not a reliable source for rejoicing. Life circumstances will never be a reliable source for rejoicing. Why? Well, because things happen in life. And our circumstances, sometimes we, if our rejoicing is dependent on circumstances, we're going to find ourselves on an emotional roller coaster as they find themselves. They look at the circumstances at the moment. They can't see God anymore. They were—they saw the Egyptian army. They couldn't see God. They couldn't see a way of deliverance. Why? Because they were focused on the Egyptians. Here they can't see a way out. Why? Because there's no water. Uh, while the water is bitter, there's no way out. And so God is, is not here. God doesn't see. He is not aware. He is completely gone. I like what Charles uh, Simmon uh, said. He said, he wrote... Who that had heard the devout songs of Israel at the Red Sea would have thought that in three days they would so totally forget their mercies and indulge in such a rebellious spirit. But look within and see whether after an occasional exercise of religious affections, You have not, within a still shorter space of time, been hurried into the indulgence of the most unhallowed tempers and the gratification of a spirit that is earthly, sensual, and devilish. Just three days. You see them? Praise God! Look at what he's done. What are you doing, God? Why did you bring us here? You see, they had been helped by God at the crossing of the Red Sea. However, they were now murmuring as if, as if God had never helped them. They were murmuring as if God had never helped them. Turn with me to Psalm 107. Uh, Psalm 107 uh, gives us a summary of those wilderness wanderings. I'm going to skip around a few of the verses here. Obviously, the the whole psalm is, is wonderful, but let me just mention those verses that are pertinent to this study. Notice Psalm 107, verse 4. The Bible says, They wandered in the wilderness in a solitary way, they found no city to dwell in. Now, by the way, that's exactly what God wanted. God didn't want them to become comfortable where they are. That's Remember, that's where they were in Egypt. They were comfortable in Egypt. God allowed the disruption to bring them out. If God did not allow them, uh, permit that them to fall in slavery then they would not have left under the leadership of Moses. Notice verse 5. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted in them. Notice down in verse 12. Therefore He brought down their heart with labor. They fell down, and there was none to help. Then, verse 13, they cried unto the Lord in their trouble, and He saved them out of their distresses. Do you see here what happens? They cried unto the Lord. They murmured unto the Lord. And so God brought down their heart into their labor and they fell down and there was none to help. And then, then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble and He saved them out of their distresses. Notice verse uh, 18. Their soul abhorreth all manner of meat, and they draw near unto the gates of death. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and He saveth them out of their distresses. You, you see, what, what happens? Well, well God knows human, human nature, and so God is bringing, bringing, bringing them along, So they might learn something about themselves. And so then they might learn something about the Lord. And so they didn't murmur. They thought that God had made a mistake in bringing them out. And so finally uh, God uh, brought them down so that finally they could cry out to God. And so God could save them and deliver them. Notice verse 27 and 28. The, they reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wit's end. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and He bringeth them out of their distresses. You see here, <laughs> why would God do this? Because human nature is self-sufficient. There's something in every one of us that tries to prove that we Can do things without God that we don't need anybody. We certainly don't need God. We can go through life on our own. And so God says, You want to go to life on your own? I'm going to bring you to your wits' end. So that in your wits' end, you can call on me and find me to be your deliverer. You see, there's something in us that we want to be our own heroes. Instead of letting God be the one who intervenes on our behalf. Self-sufficiency in our lives is what God is trying to do away with. By the way, the murmuring of the children of Israel be so severe in chapter 17 that uh, they almost stoned Moses. He would have died under such a stoning. So let's go back to Exodus chapter 15. And I want you to notice a few things in verse 25. He says, And he, Moses, cried unto the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, which when he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there he proved them. Now, I want you to notice several things. First of all, Moses cried unto the Lord after the disappointment of Mara. How many days had they been out in the wilderness looking for water? Three days. Why didn't anybody pray then? (laughs) You see, Moses prays as soon as there's disappointment. And so I think that's a good thing here. You see, he cried unto the Lord. Now, now by the way, if you look throughout the book of Exodus, you know, often we look at Moses and he has been coined the greatest leader in Israel's history. And our arg- argument arguably you, you can make that case, but let me encourage you to tell you here that the strength of the leadership of Moses was not found in his ability to move people. It's obvious he couldn't move them. The strength of, in the leadership of Moses was found in his repeated supplication to God. What made Moses a great leader? Well, you read through his life and you tell me. You tell me if he was that man that could move people around. That when he spoke, everybody listened. That when he said something, everybody couldn't wait to hear what he had to say. Not so. But he was a man who was often found on his face. The Bible, God himself says that God spoke with Moses face to face as a man speaketh to a friend. You see, that's what made Moses so effective. I think of uh, this moment when they pray. <laughs> you often miss something. When you don't pray, we sing the song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. You know the song. But one of the verses goes something like this Oh, what peace we often forfeit. All because, uh, oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Think about that. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. We do that on our own. God wants to give us peace. He wants to bear the pain, but we end up bearing the pain on our own and we forfeit the peace that God wants to give us. Why? Because we simply don't come to God and ask for help in time of need. And so he cried unto the Lord. And then, this is interesting, and I guess I've changed my perspective on this verse because he says, And the Lord showed him a tree. Now what's interesting is, notice the verse. The Lord showed him a tree, which when he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. So God, notice, all God did was show him a tree, period. Now Moses cast the tree into the water, and the water was made sweet. Now, I want you to see here, the Lord simply showed Moses a tree. That's all God did. He did not tell Moses what the tree would do. At least we don't have it here in the text. He didn't say, now Moses, you see that tree? If you cast the tree into the water, the water will be made sweet. God didn't say that. The Bible just says that the Lord showed him a tree. Neither did God tell Moses that the waters would become sweet once he cast the tree into the water. Moses, I think here, what the lesson we learn is this, that the tree was there all along. But Moses didn't see the tree until he prayed. You remember when they saw the Egyptians, you remember what Moses said? He said this, Fear not, stand still, and what? See the salvation of the Lord. You know what prayer does for us often? It helps us not to fear and to stand still so that we can see something that we're not seeing in the commotion and the agitation and the murmuring. Now, some people have said, well, God probably told Moses that this would, ha- would happen. Some people said there were some uh, uh, properties in this tree that would cause the water chemically to react and to become sweet. Uh, I don't, really don't think that that's the point of this text. The point of this text is the tree was there all along. Moses didn't see it. And so when Moses prayed, God showed him what he was missing all along. Just like earlier... When Moses had instructed the children of Israel, they could not see a way out of deliverance. Why? Because they were so agitated. And they had to simply stand still so they could see something they were not seeing in the moment. Here is the same lesson. You see, he only saw the tree when he cried out to God. You see, there's something that is helpful for us. What is a statement of faith Often when we are going through trials and difficulties and troubles sometimes, we simply need to to, to stand still and just pray and come in the presence of God and say, God, I'm not sure what to do at this point. Now, do you think Moses knew what to do at this point? He didn't know what to do. But God, when he prayed, he showed him something. What? A tree. That's it. God showed Moses something that was always there. but he couldn't see it until he prayed. I think sometimes what happens is life gets confusing and hectic and the flesh is very active. And one of the best ways to suppress the flesh is to simply come to God and say, God, I just need to stop my agitation. Because obviously, I'm seeing something that I'm not seeing something that I ought to see. You know, there's a pattern. If you turn with me, let me show you a pattern in the Bible. That's why I think this is the point of this text. Go back with me to Genesis 21. Back in Genesis 21. Notice with me in verse. um, Now, you remember. Um, Abraham had Ishmael with uh, Sarah's servant. Yeah, Hagar, you you know the name. (laughs) So they're sent away. And you remember they're out and they're in need. And notice um, we see verse 16 of Genesis 21. Uh, Verse 15, And the water was spent in the bottle, and she cast the child under one of the shrubs. And she went and sat her down over him against a good way off, as if uh, it were a bow shot. For she said, Let me not see the death of my child. So you can imagine that she's very desperate in that moment. Would you be? Would you not be desperate? My child's going to, I just don't want to see my child die in such a way. And she sat over against him, and Lifted up her voice and wept, and the Lord heard the voice of the lad, and the angel of God called to Hagar, out of heaven and said unto her, What aileth thee, Hagar? Fear not, for God hath heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him in thine hand, for I will make him a great nation. And God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. Can I ask you this? Was the well of water there? It was already there. But for some reason she couldn't see it. In her desperation. Finally she cries out to God. And God says hey. Look there's a well. There's a well. Let me give you another example. Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6. Notice with me, um, let's begin in verse 13. 2 Kings 6, verse 13. And he said, Go and spy where he is, that I may send and fetch him. And it shall be told him, saying, Behold, he is in Dothan. Therefore sent he hither horses and chariots and a great host, and they came by night and compassed the city about. And when the servant of the man of God was risen early, and gone forth, behold, an host encompassed the city, both with horses and chariots. And his servants said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? And he answered, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. Huh? It's just me and you. Well, wait. Verse 17. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes. Now, now, <laughs> why did he pray that? Well, obviously he was agitated. What are we going to do? We're done. There's nothing we can do. That's it. Life is over. You, you can sense the agitation without it. The, the text saying it. And so Elisha says, that's why he intervenes and in pray, because he says, in his agitation, he is seeing something. Oh, well, he's not seeing something that is there. And so he opened his eyes. says, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of the horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. So what do we learn here? When Moses prays to God, God just simply says, there's a tree. The Bible says, When the Lord showed him the tree, which when he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made for them a statue and an ordinance, and there he proved them. You see, in the moment of prayer, Moses was able to see something that he could not see in his agitation. You know, often in our lives we become agitated. Can I help you when you become agitated? A good thing to do is just go apart, stop the agitation, and simply call out to God. As I mentioned earlier in chapter 14, stop all activities of the flesh and call out to God. Now, I believe when you look at here, he says he cast the tree into the water. The waters were made sweet. There he made for them a statute and an ordinance and there he proved them. I I do believe here that there is a picture and I I, I say that here, I'm not dogmatic about it, but I I do believe there's a picture here about the cross. Uh, Because the children of Israel come to the place and the water is in bitterness. And the bitter water, again, this is the place that God had brought them. This is the same place that God will provide for them water. And all that God needed to do was to show Moses a tree and Moses, when he saw the tree, he cast the tree into the water and the water became sweet. Now the Bible refers to the cross as a tree. Acts chapter 5 verse 30, when Peter preaches, he says, "...the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree." In Acts 10, 39, whom they slew and hanged on the tree. Acts 13, 29, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. You see, in a sense, the cross of Christ for us, what does the cross of Christ mean for us? The cross of Christ has changed for us the bitterness of sin into the sweetness of life in Jesus Christ. You see, all that sin brought in our lives is bitterness But as soon as Jesus died on a tree, as soon as the tree is cast into the bitter life, that bitter life becomes sweet. By the way, that's what God does. He wants to change what is bitter, and He can take what is bitter and change it into sweetness. The Bible says at the end of verse 25, you know why God brought them there? To prove them. Do you know that this was not what God had for them? In other words, the the waters of Mar was was not the final destination in this trip. What's the final destination? Well, look at verse 27. And they came to Elam where were twelve wells of water and three score and ten palm trees. Why twelve wells? Well, how many tribes are there? There's twelve. So each tribe got its own well. That's the final destination. You see, I believe God wanted to bring them to those, 10 well, uh, to those 12 wells all along. But before He brought them there, He took them to the waters of Mara. He first took them to the waters of Mara so that in that moment they could see God change what is bitter into sweetness. Difficulties, trial. They have a bitter taste. Could I encourage you that those trials and afflictions, God can take those very same things and make them sweet? And the greatest example is found in Jesus Christ. We know that there is uh, nothing sweet about the cross itself, It, it, it is ugly. Uh, Jesus Christ was marred more than any man. His uh, visits could not be recognized as a man. He, he, he was pierced, he was, he was spat upon, his beard was ripped, he was uh, whipped with a cat of nine tails, he was unrecognizable as a human being, and the cross was always a punishment that men abhorred. There is nothing pleasant about the cross, and what the cross represents is the sin of humanity being judged under the wrath of the Almighty God. And yet that same scene of bitterness is at the same time the scene of sweetness. Why? Because it was there that our sin was forgiven. You see, whatever happens into our lives, God will take bitter moments. And when we reflect back on those moments, we will see sweetness. Why? Because of what God did for us in those moments. Do you notice here we end, I'll, I'll just end with this, but at the end of, notice what he says in verse 26, and he said, If thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, and will do that which is right in his sight, and will give ear to his commandments, and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon thee which I have brought upon the Egyptians. By the way, God is going to judge them with diseases. They're going to remember at one point, God is going to send some snakes and they're going to have to be healed by what? By doing what? By looking to the brazen serpent. And if they look, they live. God God is going to bring them through those things. Why? When they're not doing what God says. So we're going to read, because He's going to mention this again and again. Why does God prove them? Because He wants to show us how often we fail in being obedient to God. So that we might see ourselves for who we really are. If there is no trial... How do we know whether we will be faithful to Him? But notice what He says. He says, I'm going to prove you for I am the Lord that healeth thee. Now, (laughs) I am the Lord that healeth thee. That is, the word Lord is all caps. It's Jehovah that heals, it's Jehovah Rapha. Jehovah, uh, you find those uh, throughout the Old Testament, you find for example Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide, Jehovah Nisi, the Lord our banner, Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is our peace. But here this is Jehovah Rapha, Rapha means to cure, to heal, to restore, why did God bring them here so God might, they might learn that God is Jehovah Rapha, the God that heals? And I'm thinking, what was healed here? Were they sick? They weren't physically sick. They were parched. They were thirsty. What do you mean they were healed? Okay. The trial... Exposed their hearts. They murmured. Their murmur revealed the condition of their heart. And in their murmur, God took what was bitter and He made it sweet. So that God could do what? So God could heal them. Heal what? Their troubled soul. I want to take your deficiencies and I want to prune you. Isn't that what God does? He prunes the tree so that it may bring forth more fruit. Sometimes the pruning is faithful, but it is necessary. Why? God's trying to remove the extra things that we don't need in our lives. And so here He is pruning the children of Israel by saying, I want you, this is what I want you to learn here. I am Jehovah Rapha." I am the God who heals. I am the God who restores. And so, we learned verse 27, And they came to Elam, where were twelve wells of water. You see, this was just passing through Marah. That was not the destination that God had for them. They passed through Mara. Often, the affliction is not the destination. It is us passing through, learning some lesson before we reach the destination where God wants to bring us.